I guess I was about 40, 41 at that point in time and said, okay, I need to make good on that promise. And so I want to give half my earnings and half my time away to nonprofit activities. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. To learn more, visit baileymiles.com and be sure to rate, review, and follow us on all social media platforms. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. David Weekly is the founder and chairman at David Weekly Homes, which is one of the largest national home builders. He is also one of the most well-respected home builders in the nation. Throughout more than 45 years of home building excellence, David Weekly Homes has earned hundreds of awards for design, quality, and customer satisfaction, and have established a solid reputation for delivering on their brand promise to provide the best in design, choice, and service for more than 115,000 home buyers. And over the course of his company's history, David's formula for providing exceptional customer satisfaction has remained the same. Hire your industry's best and keep them happy, so they'll in turn go the extra mile and delight our customers. This rewarding workplace culture has even been recognized 17 times by Fortune Magazine as one of the 100 best companies to work for. At 23, David teamed up with his older brother Dick to establish David Weekly Homes in Houston, Texas in 1976. David worked as a salesperson, purchasing manager, and builder. To differentiate his homes from competing national companies, he paid close attention to home design. The company was leading close to 600 homes a year in Houston alone, leading David to grow his team of talented people and earn recognition as one of the fastest growing companies in the nation by Inc. Magazine. Even though much has changed since 1976, their purpose of building dreams, enhancing lives has never wavered. On the show, David shares his story, the impact of family, gives a master class on growing and operating a company, choosing to give away half his time and resources, creating a great culture, taking action, choosing where and how to spend your time giving back, focusing less on yourself and more on others, and much more. Be sure to check out David Weekly Homes for more information on his company, as well as his foundation, the Dovetail Impact Foundation, at dovetailimpact.org. I would also highly encourage you to read his two books, The Gift and the Giver, and The Board and the CEO, which you can find in the show note links and wherever books are sold. Be sure to get a pen and paper and take a lot of notes and enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. Today, I have a special guest, David Weekly. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, if you wouldn't mind, maybe give our listeners some context and background to you and what life was like growing up for you. Uh, well, born and raised in Houston, Texas, and uh, grew up as a child of the greatest generation. My parents were married 70 years, and I'm the third of three boys, and uh, grew up out in uh, the West Memorial section of Houston, and my dad was an entrepreneur. He had his own advertising agency, and uh, mom didn't work. Mom, mom raised the kids and was fortunate to... Uh, had some great experiences as a youth. I was never uh, the best looking or the smartest kid or a great athlete. So uh, Boy Scouts had a lot of impact on me because I found out that if I worked hard, I could get little badges and and earn things and become an Eagle Scout as my two older brothers had been. So 
uh, it was a pretty uh, wonderful youth and then went to Trinity University and followed my high school sweetheart there. And we later got married and been married 47 years now. So mm. that's pretty much my uh, birth story, so to speak. Yeah, there's a lot summed up in there, but you touched on your parents being married for 70 years. Maybe as you look back, because you've been married for 47, that's a long time too. And that's awesome. But what are some things you really take away from just watching your parents and some of the lessons that you learned from 70 plus years of, of watching them be married? Uh, they were a partnership. They were best friends. Um, you know, at different times, mom was the tough one, uh, kind of German heritage driver. And uh, dad was the sweetest ones or the sweeter one, you know, uh, growing up in his Texas, small town, um, Baptist. He said he, there wasn't a day he wasn't in church. And so uh, uh, saw my dad for many years, you know, reach into his pocket and put an envelope in the plate. And, and uh, that kind of affected how I thought about giving back and elder of the church, et cetera. So that, that all was formative in my early experience. Absolutely. Well, what about maybe your, your brothers, <clears throat> excuse me, your brothers being a little bit older than you and getting to watch them as you grew up? Because I know they have had an impact in your life and, and working as well. What did you learn from them maybe growing up that you didn't necessarily realize? Well, there was a good eight years between me and my next oldest brother and, and 11 for the other one. So I was kind of an accident, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, And I just grew up wanting to emulate them and make them proud. So they, they were a major factor in my life as well. And my oldest brother went to Harvard and, 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 and the next brother who's been my partner for 47 years now, you know, was a, a Navy officer. And so it, I've always looked up to, to, to them. Yeah. There's always been some good role models, I'm sure. So, yes. Yeah. Well, how did you wind up? You said you went to Trinity with your wife. What were you doing at Trinity and did you have any idea you wanted to be in the home building business and kind of what were you studying and how did that kind of evolve into what it did? Yeah, I mean, I went to Trinity, had a great time and uh, was an economics major. And then as a kind of senior, figured out that economists had to go and get further degrees. And and so I decided to add a geology major on because the only gas business is big here in Texas. And so I got a geology degree as well in my last year. So everybody else was uh, enjoying their last year. I was going to labs okay. four days a week. Uh, and then I, uh, applied to and got in Harvard to try to follow my, my, my brother, but Harvard said, you got to work for a couple of years. You know, we don't take 21 year olds and MBA classes. So, uh, I said, terrific. And so it just so happened that a home builder was on campus recruiting. I didn't really know what home building was, didn't really care. They were paying well. It was just going to be a two-year stint, and so I went to work for them. Mm. And it was going well, I think, when you started working for them, about a year and a half, and then maybe some things happened. Describe that experience of maybe stepping into a role, working, doing a good job, and then sometimes maybe not getting exactly what was planned on um, happening. Yeah, it was a great company in the late 70s. Um, homes were selling like crazy. Um, I was promoted from a warranty service to builder to project manager over builders and salespeople and warranty within like a year. So at, at, you know, 22, I'm trying to manage a group of six people and I was clearly out of my depth. 
but at the same time, they said, okay, here's our deal. We'll give you a percentage of the profits for this community and, and uh, you as leader take it and run. So I was doing that. And then halfway through the year, they changed that instead of profits, we'll give you a company car. And uh, so I talked to my boss and I talked to my boss's boss. And then my, one of my older brothers who, again, I was a mentor said, look, I'm sure they just don't understand their change of deal in mid year, write a letter to the president. I did. He called me and I said, this is going to be great. You know, he, he understands and will put me back on the profit basis. And he fired me because I wasn't a company guy. <laughs> so at, at that point, um, my older brother, he gave me that advice. So well, why don't you just start a home building business? I mean, and I'll come in with you and put my net worth on the line. And obviously I'd been building a year and a half or what much I didn't know. I was in my <laughs> young 20s. Uh, with, with his money and my incredible depth and expertise, I was pretty sure we could have a successful business. And so he put his net worth on the line and we got started. And fortunately, it was a great time to, to start out in Houston. So it was the late 70s and, and early 80s. Hmm. Well, even stepping in before we even step into you starting your own company with your brother there, what do you feel like you learned in that, even that year and a half time? Because had you had a lot of experience managing people and personalities and um, as well as just the organizational component of, of running job sites and, and a company and things like that, that you were doing? Uh, yeah, I kind of went back to my Boy Scout days and uh, uh, I've always kind of been someone that uh, wasn't necessarily smarter than everybody else, but would work as hard or harder mm -hmm. than everybody else. So, uh, you know, got in early and stayed late and, and did all that was required of me and felt a deep sense of responsibility to the company. And it, it was a great company. I mean, one disagreement, but it was a great company. And uh, as well as the folks I had there, but I, I got to tell you that at 22, trying to figure out how to manage salespeople, uh, which I knew nothing about, and and builders, which I now had a year of experience in, was a challenge that I didn't do it very well mm. in hindsight. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting perspective because you get a lot of uh, opportunity to work with a lot of different people at that young of an age and just trying to understand how we take individually, but also how other people take and being able to motivate and get them to to work towards a common goal, I think is really impactful. And the earlier you can learn that, the better. And I think you touched on being a Boy Scouts, being an Eagle Scout, you're learning a lot of those qualities and characteristics and the values that come to fruition and work and make a work and business impactful in a lot of ways. So I think that's a, a great perspective. When you guys decided to take the jump, you said you touched on hard work and that you were a guy that's going to figure it out. When you started your company, did you have the idea of what it became or were you just tech? being faithful and taking a step and trying to do the best you can with what you had at the time. Uh, I had no vision of what it might become. I was just trying to make a living. Uh, it, it was interesting. I, I, I had got married in July of that year and got fired in August. And so my wife kind of came home from teaching school and I'm sitting on the couch watching a soap opera and <laughs> she says, what, what's going on? Said, well, I got fired. Said, well, this didn't start off that well, <laughs> and so, and so she she continued to work, and we lived off lived off her salary for uh, a number of years as a school teacher while I started the business and didn't take a salary starting out. Mm -hmm. And you said 
you started in the seventies. And so that was a pretty good time to start where you could kind of scale up. How many homes did you start off the bat building and, and how did you kind of start expanding? Yeah, we were one community and built two models and, and, you know, homes were from the thirties back then, not the one thirties, not the two thirties, but the thirties, if you can imagine, I can't even imagine. Can you do that uh, again for us now? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'd like to, uh, but uh, you know, there was me and a secretary and I was the builder and starting out salesperson. Then I hired a salesperson. So it was a very much a rank startup. And, you know, we had a $500,000 uh, bank line and a hundred thousand dollar working capital loan. And I had to ensure that I was able to get profitable before those two ran out. Yeah. And again, my brother put his, his entire net worth on the line at that point in time, he'd been a successful real estate broker and uh, it, it, fortunately, it was a great time and, and the market bailed me out, quite honestly. Mm, absolutely. Well, were you someone who sought out people ahead of you, like mentors and people that you could learn from? Or were you kind of navigating this as you go? You had your brother, but were you looking at other builders and trying to learn as much as you can from them? Well, I was uh, a great copier <laughs> of things, but I realized early in my first community that I was going to have to differentiate myself because the big public guys, or they, they weren't even public then, they were big builders. There weren't any public builders at that point in time. Uh, but the big builders were very good and could buy for, you know, had better cost and better value. So I said, I have to do something different. So we start off differentiating ourselves with product design. And I went to California and did everything I could to bring something different to the marketplace, which would allow me to, to charge premium prices. And we've kind of done that ever since. It's been a different, differentiated uh, community builder and, and changed over time from uh, pure design to quality and now treatment uh, of customers. So, but that differentiation has been an ongoing factor for the last 47 years. Yeah, well, I think that's a great point because it's the ability to look into the future to see opportunities and to maybe differentiate yourself in different ways. It's not just been one way. There's been a lot of ways that you guys have tried to do that within the home building business. And then also within inside your company, I'm sure we'll allude to here in a little bit, but you touched on the homes being built in the thirties. I've heard a great story that you've shared many times about how, you know, you started with weekly homes and there was a billboard sign that, that had homes from the thirties. If you wouldn't mind, just share that real quick. Cause I think that's a funny little story. Oh yeah. So my brother and I, went in together and we were 50, 50 partners. And, um, so after much, uh, you know, market survey and thought, we said, okay, let's name it weekly homes. <laughs> I, I, it, it, it took about as much thought as a cup of coffee did. So we <laughs> named it weekly homes. Uh, back then the main advertising, uh, medium was billboards. And so there was a billboard, you know, right before you took a right turn that said weekly homes from the thirties, and I remember a you know pickup truck pulled up full of furniture in the back and came into the sales office and said, where are those homes to rent for $30 a week? <laughs> Makes total sense. Mm -hmm. I never would have thought of it. So then I called up my brother, who's the financial partner, but never really an operating partner. And I said, Dick, we got this problem and I've got the solution. Let's name it David Weekly Homes. <laughs> and, and he said, whatever, little brother. I mean, you know, whatever you want to do. He's always been a great part partner like that. He's he's counseled me on important issues, uh, but let me run on a lot of silly issues. 
uh-huh. like like that. And so we named it Dave, Dave Weekly Homes. Uh, only come to find out when I'm, I was in my 30s and I had young kids growing up and my name was on these billboards all over the place that uh, I didn't want my kids to grow up being presumed to be the rich kids. Uh, and so I looked at change the name to Craftsman Homes. Mm-hmm. But we did do some market research at this point and found out that there was already enough equity uh, that had been built up in the brand that it would not be a wise move and would cost the company money. So we didn't do it. And and uh, with God's sense of humor now, I find that that having a name associated with a company allows people like you to call me up and do things like this. Absolutely. Where with Craftsman's Homes, I probably wouldn't have that platform. Absolutely. You have a tremendous platform to impact not only the community that you're in, but also all around worldwide like you've done. So we'll we'll get into that. But I think that's a great point. I think the story is fascinating how you go from Weekly Homes to David Weekly Homes. And as you moved into expanding your company, I know you have gone through the cycles of, of the real estate market. Um, how have you managed, you know, maybe the stress that comes along with that, uh, the challenges that come along with that? and being able to have humility throughout that process as the ups and downs come around. Yeah. Starting out and in my twenties, um, I, I would say humility is not anything anybody would have associated with me. I mean, after, after all the company was named David weekly homes okay. and we were building three or 400 homes a year by the time I was 30 and, um, I was a millionaire. And I was building a 10,000 square foot home for myself and my family uh, and driving a seven series BMW. And there wasn't much I didn't know. I was a president of the local builders association. I got to go speak to 300 people once a month. And so I was kind of uh, God's gift to the home building business at that <laughs> point in time. And then I kind of got slapped upside the head in the mid eighties. Uh, there was a huge downturn in the oil business in Houston, which is the only market we were in. And we went from 30,000 housing starts to 6,000 housing starts in a period of about six months. And there was no way you could survive and make a living in Houston. And so that's the first time we expanded to other markets. We expanded to Austin, Dallas. Fortunately, we found out that people liked our differentiated homes and our designs in those markets. And so we were able to get profitable in those markets uh, quick enough to offset our losses in Houston. And, um, you know, during that time, I lost that big house, you know, went back to my pickup truck. I mean, it it was a very humbling time. And so I had to kind of get slapped up the head to to get me to be humble. But it worked. And I remember, you know, uh, that sometime during that process and we just uh, barely made it out without going bankrupt. My brother and I had set up and said, okay, if we get down to only. Two million dollars in net net worth. We're going to need to um, stop doing business. It was okay to not do business. It wasn't okay to go broke and have people not not get paid. Yeah. And I think we got down to two million one before I was able to turn around in Austin mm-hmm. and Dallas. So it was very much a bootstrap. You know, do whatever you can do to survive. Yeah. Well, how did that? I mean, you just alluded to a little bit, but how did that kind of shape the way you did business for for going well, into the well, future? Well, I. I Having that early setback, especially when I thought it was all about me and I was on top top of the world, was humbling. And um, having literally millions of dollars flow through my hands and have no good come out of it um, was thought provoking. 
And so I remember kind of uh, making a promise that sometimes uh, people make when they're in extremis, God, give me one more boom and I won't screw the next one up. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, we were able to come back in the late 80s and by the early 90s, I remembered that promise and said, okay, uh, I'd also been doing the business for almost 20 years and I was operating in five cities and working 70 hours a week, flying to all the cities as the entrepreneur and leader and realized that I was out over my skis. I'd made this promise, et cetera. And so that's when I was, I guess I was about 40, 41 at that point in time and said, okay, I need to make good on that promise. And so I want to give half my earnings and half my time away to nonprofit activities. So that was a big turning point. Also during that time, uh, not only did I realize I was over the skis, but I had to have a heart operation for a birth defect, open heart surgery. And I'd also just gone on a on kind of a spiritual three-day retreat and kind of all those things work were together, said, okay, it's time for me to go uh, make make a shift. Absolutely. Well, what was kind of the idea behind maybe the half and half, spending half your time, half your profits? Uh, well, the church I was attending at, at the time, Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church, always had a dollar for dollar giving policy. Mm -hmm. You know, for every dollar they spent on themselves, they gave a dollar away. I had realized that I had enough. I'd done all kinds of, you know, uh, schedules, et cetera, and my net worth and how much I needed to have if the world went away and all these different things. And, uh, you know, I'd realized that driving fancy cars and living in big houses wasn't the end, wasn't my end game. I had, there were other things that were more important. Uh, I don't know if you've, there's a book called uh, The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And he talks about if the first mountain is, you know, success and, and uh, self-definition, uh, the second mountain is meaning and purpose. Mm. And so uh, I, I had to go through that valley between the mountains before I rec recognized that the second mountain was more important and more valuable than the first mountain of success. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great perspective. I'll have to read that book. But going through those experiences, did you, before you even went through those experiences, did you feel like you had meaning in your work anyway, or were you just kind of working and, and maybe not as much money. I, as I, I was working to, to grow a big company and make, make a lot of money. I was, you know, I was yeah. going for the American dream. And so uh, I, I'd love to tell you that I would had big dreams of growing this organization that, that was uh, worthwhile in a lot of different ways. I was, it was kind of all about David. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you bring up a really good point because you worked hard, you had, a vision or an idea of where you wanted to go. Maybe that was selfish or not, but all these things in our life, these experiences shape us. And I think God uses them for a lot of things we don't understand until maybe after the fact. And obviously the things that you did were kind of the foundation for pushing in and, and growing, expanding the business. And I know you've touched on going through those experiences and kind of having a perspective shift within your work and your life and having meaning as you stepped into that kind of that next phase of your work and your business, why was it important to bring on more another person to kind of expand the business that way you could go and do more with kind of the the ideas you just shared? Well, there are a lot of generous people that that 
do great things with the uh, funds that they've been allowed to accumulate. The harder thing is to give time, uh, especially at different seasons in your life. But if, if I committed to give half my money and half my time, that meant I had to bring somebody in to run the company. And so uh, I decided to bring on a COO. And at that time, you know, I did the natural thing an entrepreneur does, which is promote from within these great loyal people who were loyal to me over time. And I did that and they're wonderful people, but they were successful in their jobs doing what I told them to do and doing it very well, but they weren't uh, self, you know, they, they couldn't make those decisions on their own and they weren't entrepreneurial enough and, 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 and weren't in leadership positions in a way to go, make what needed to happen at a COO level. And so I ended up going outside after a couple tries and, you know, hired a recruiting firm and did it. And I found a great gentleman who we were successful with and he was COO and then president. And now he's been CEO for the last 20 years or so. And so it was about a $300 million firm when I brought him on. And now it's a, we did 3 billion last year. So he's clearly done a better job than I could have done. <laughs> Yeah, so, absolutely. So, so again, God, God bless that that move with with personnel uh, and 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 people that, that could help me grow. Yeah, well, I think this was a, a question that just came to mind, and I think is a really good question for you because you talked about being able to hire someone to really expand, and he, he's done a fantastic job doing that, and also giving you the ability to go and and make an impact with your time and your resources. What do you feel like when you're looking for people and with different? characteristics and qualities, what are you looking for to build a great team? Because in order for people to, to have more time and freedom to not have to do some of the things they need to do to be able to delegate, you have to bring in great people and building a great team is, is super important. And I know you've done that at David Weekly Homes and that's pretty evident in a lot of the information that's out there about you guys. What have you looked for and how have you gone about doing that? I think the first thing is, um, it's hard to do is to be self-aware enough to recognize your own weaknesses yeah. as well as your own strengths. You know, we can all kind of be falsely humble in a way and say, Oh, it's not me or not this or not that. But um, I, I, I think recognize your own strengths is important as well as recognizing your, your weaknesses. Most of us always know our weaknesses and we try to overcompensate and, and get better at them, et cetera. But I also think you can hire to fill those in because it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to change who we are yeah. uh, fundamentally. And so, you know, my strength had been vision drive, not management process, et cetera. I mean, kind of a classic entrepreneur construct. Sure. Uh, and so recognizing that I needed to support myself and the company and the people within the company with somebody that had a different set of skills uh, became apparent. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I think those are having the self-awareness is something that's extremely important and being able to understand strengths and weaknesses, like you said, and delegating opportunities where that might be in different organizations really can help you expand and grow and, and make a really thriving uh, organization as well, because everyone's focusing on the things that they're gifted and, and talented with. I think that's a great point. And as you continue to do that, you guys were expanding, the company was growing, you were spending a lot of time on your company, but you're also starting to get back how did how did you kind of identify ways you wanted to give back, both with your time and with your resources? 
so with my time, if you've got kind of 2,000 working hours a year, um, half my time is 1,000 hours a year doing nothing but nonprofit work. And I've now been doing that for 30 years. So that's 30,000 hours worth of nonprofit work. And I'm still screwing things up <laughs> and make mistakes regularly. But I've I've made a lot of them. So I've got a lot of experience in that area. Um, but in, in, in thinking about, I mean, I think you go to your calendar and you commit to something. And what I ended up doing was doing what most people do was get involved in things that are local, that interested me, whether it be a kid's school, whether it be a local nonprofit that I was aware of. So I got involved in some things that where I had some local passions. And over time, I'd, you know, be on a board and I'd become chairman of the board. You know, Young Life was important to me. And so I started a Young Life uh, board in Houston, the first one kind of in the country. And so worked through that and met some great friends and different things. So I, I think that uh, if, if you allow yourself to kind of listen and be sensitive, uh, I often think that you can kind of either get the call or the, or the nudge with, with, with where you ought to start. And, and, and to me, it's a matter of just taking action and seeing where it leads. Hmm. So it's it, taking those first steps and, and doing something. And then I found that, you know, as long as I follow those nudges, I get, uh, Holy Spirit and start doing something, it seems to work out. So I've probably been on 20 boards and been chairman of 10. And and so I did that for the first 10 years of my nonprofit work and kind of learned about the nonprofit business, went through the frustrations of dealing with nonprofits that were not well run and the joys of working with those that were and learning how to determine the difference. And um, then I you know, one day I kind of woke up and I was on this hospital board and I looked up and down the board uh, table and very competent people. And I wasn't being as additive uh, as I thought I could. I was just kind of a name sitting on a board and that didn't really motivate me because I like action and like helping and like being put to use. And so I said, well, you know, there are lots of great people in our city. They can do the local stuff. So I went and I took a tour of all seven continents and and tried to determine where I could best help. And for me, that started out being Africa, where I thought that uh, had, had the most need and the most help. So I started doing international work and I found that very rewarding and and high leverage because a dollar in Africa can go a lot farther than it can in the U.S. Sure. And so, you know, being an entrepreneur, I love leverage yeah. <laughs> and and I love scale. And so it kind of fit with who I naturally was. And uh, so I, I think for, for any of us, if we can, if we can find our track where our natural giftedness is um, that, that it's, that we'll find more joy. And so for me, even when I was in, in doing the local nonprofits here in Houston, I would usually gravitate to smaller ones that we need to build competency in rather than the big ones that were already professional, so to speak. So I, I just always, uh, naturally drive to smaller and try to make them larger and more yeah. successful. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. But even going into what you just shared, how would you encourage someone to kind of understand about what those natural giftedness are and, and kind of that desire? And then also, how would you encourage someone just to take action on that? Because are you, I would assume, are you someone who's always kind of had a bias towards action and being able to take a step? and jump in. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a biblical James chapter, you know, James <laughs> kind of guy where, I mean, 
it's not what you say, it's what you do. So uh, bias for actions, I, somehow it's always been kind of in, inbred. So I don't know how to train that other than, you know, kind of just do it. Nike's <laughs> slogan and just start. And, you know, you're never going to get it perfect, but unless you, if you start, you can then iterate and learn. Um, but you just got to start. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think in terms of defining uh, your own strengths, my bet is even most people in their thirties or forties could sit back and say, clearly when I do this, I win. And when I do this, I lose. Clearly, this, this creates happiness and this creates, you know, difficulty. Mm -hmm. And I think you go where where you're naturally gifted. And and so I and I think we have to be honest enough to say, OK, I'm, I am pretty good at this and, and go that direction and uh, attempt to be honest with yourself. Uh, we're normally honest in our weaknesses, but not our strengths. Uh, and, you know, we always naturally try to you know, fill in our strengths. And I, I would also be honest, excuse me, fill in our weaknesses. And I would also be honest about, okay, I do this pretty well and, and go in that direction. Yeah. And I think those asking those questions, they can be simple, but I think deep down, most of us kind of have an understanding of that. And I would assume too, like having people around you to ask, Hey, do you think this is something I'm good at or something I'm bad at? You know, having, having some wise counsel around you is really important as well to be able to ask. Well, and I, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a business, as a young business owner, oftentimes it can be very lonely because you don't have anybody to, you know, you're supposed to be the guy in charge. You're supposed to be the guy or gal that knows what they're doing. And so therefore you have to act and look like it, whether you do or you don't. Yeah. Um, and going through downturns, you've got to, have that strength of resolve, even though you might be scared to death. And so uh, I joined this group called YPO young presence organization at a, at a young age. And there's, there's EO entrepreneur organization, which I'm going to be speaking to tonight. Okay. Uh, and so I think finding a group of um, compadres uh, that you can share your life with is valuable, whether it be in a, Bible study, a YPO forum, an EO forum, uh, finding some some place with peers where you can share the good things and bad things of your life. And in these YPO forums, we it, it wasn't just about business. You know, we went through divorces, we went through deaths, we went through all kinds of things together. It wasn't a secular format, which was fine, and and then uh, but. Uh, you know, the spiritual format might have been better, but 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 mine was in a secular format with y, YPO. But as, as a young entrepreneur, it can be lonely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think going to your point, just having people around you, you can go through those ups and downs with. You can talk about things outside of work and inside of work too. Uh, really makes a difference because you can learn through that, and you also can grow your strength and resolve with people around you. I think as well. Right, and for sure, and you can do it individually as well. But as, as you're talking about some of these things, I just I have a question for you, just for a lot of people that maybe, maybe they're younger um, business owners, they're entrepreneurs, or even older too, but how did you go about kind of channeling that innate ambition that you had, but also not letting it uh, get too much of you to where you're not a present father, not a present husband, and also to being able to trust God 
as well as channel your ambition and the tension within that? Uh, that's a great question, a difficult question. And I would uh, love to say I did that well, but quite honestly, I was traveling a lot and I was I was not near as good a parent as my children are today. Uh, I mean, we were there and we took good trips and this and that, but I for sure didn't make every game and didn't, I, I wasn't one of those kind of dads. Uh, you know, I was a business dad and sure. came home and, you know, we took weekends together and did different things, but I was, I was not as present as my kids are in their kids' life. So I would say that's, that's a failing. Okay. Um, what was the rest of the question? Or maybe, maybe what would you, after looking back now, what would be some okay. things that you would maybe advise? Well, yeah, the, 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 the tension. So, um, you know, in my first 20 years of my career, it was really all about me. And as I made the switch, uh, and it went to giving half away and, and, and half my time, my whole thinking kind of switched from being all about me to it being all about others. And that's when, um, we had the great growth in the company, start growing in the company. That's when I started taking better care of my team members. You know, we've got a, 8% match on a 401k. We've got profit sharing. We've got chaplains in our markets. Uh, we do a whole lot for our company and our team members. And our core purpose as a company is building dreams, enhancing lives, our team, our customers, and our community. And so we attempt to live that out every day. And uh, we came up with that going through this, this time period that it starts with a team. And if we do a great job for the team, then they'll do a great job for the customers. And if we do a great job for the customers, then they'll pay us well. And we'll, and we'll have enough to do a great job for the community. Yeah. So building dreams, enhancing lives, our team, our customers and our community. And so, you know, I went to seminars. I learned as much as I could. I went to, you know, Deming, uh, you know, there were, I, I just educated myself a lot in these various areas and became a student of these various areas. And it was interesting to me. It was different than home building. I kind of knew how to build homes now. Yeah. I knew how to design them. I kind of knew, knew how to do, do those things. This is a whole different aspect. At the time, I was also uh, moving forward my faith, kind of going uh, from a cultural uh, Christian to more of a committed Christian. And so what does that look like? And what does that mean? And how do you treat people and all those things? So you know, we, we measure everything in our company, you know, metrics are really important to kind of let people know how they're doing, whether it be on a football field or, or in business. And so in terms of measuring how we're doing with our team, which is our first and primary focus, um, it, it's not just financial care, it's also emotional care and the way we manage them is probably the biggest issue. And uh, with John, our CEO, uh, being the major, the major, taking the major credit for this. Uh, we're proud that we've been on Fortune's 100 best place to work for 17 times now. Uh, and that's really a function of the way we've managed people to lift them up and be the best they can be and try to find a good fit for them rather than beat them down and see how productive, you know, their production schedule or whatever. I mean, we measure these things and then and then share the measurements and allow people to succeed and try to put them in the right place. So that plus, you know, financially taking care of them well has allowed us to garner that. On the customer standpoint, you know, where I talked about differentiation, uh, 
uh, we differentiate ourselves first with our plan design. Then we came into the 90s and we differentiate ourselves with choice, uh, where most people said, here, take it as is, you know, harvest green countertops and <laughs> avocado gold discs or whatever. I mean, Coming you know, back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we, uh, we said choice. And so we created our design centers and all those. So that's differentiate ourselves. In the last 20 years, we really di- differentiate ourselves on personal attention and customer delight, not just satisfaction. And so we ranked 4.8 out of 5 on a scale uh, the way, you know, customers rate us top in the country. And that begats uh, great referrals. You know, 35% of our sales come from referrals. And so building dreams, enhancing lives of our team, our customers, uh, you know, we're we're very um, serious about our customers. So on a one to five scale, you know, most people measure satisfaction fours and fives. We only measure fives and we want to delight them. And it's great for everybody on the team uh, getting letters and commendations. And it just makes everybody feel good about what we're doing every day. Mm-hmm. And indeed, we've got a noble job building homes for people. You know, it's where they spend the majority of their hours. It's it's where your daughter walks down the stair to go to the prom. It's where you have Christmas with the young kids. It's it's very important work, and we can make people's lives either wonderful or horrible based upon the job we do at that. And so everybody shares that view. So we hire people that care, and then we teach them what they need to know to execute on our skills. Hmm. And then again, if we do do that well, it creates the wealth that we can give back to the community as well as the team. Absolutely. And what you just shared is is a great little masterclass on how to grow, but I, I think it's awesome to be able to look back at your story and see how that difference came whenever you focused on serving other people within your organization and then working outward. Because I think it's fascinating when you hear a lot of stories, it doesn't mean you're going to have a $3 billion business when you do all these things, but most often than not, good things happen when you focus on other people and in and, and a line of service towards the people that you work with and the people around you. So I think just hearing that is encouraging, but also for younger people to channel their thinking towards how can I be in service to others and not just in service to myself? Um, well, so. and, and, and going back to the mountain analogy, you know, if the first money is about happiness and we have a great drive for happiness in the U S and happiness, normally we think about in terms of things yeah. where joy is the second mountain. And that's more about meaning and purpose and that takes everything to a whole different level. And that's always focused on others is to me, the only way to get to the joy level. Yeah. The second mountain. And that's, that's a great perspective because it's easy to think about happiness. It's another thing to think about joy. It's meaningful. It has purpose and being able to actually go for that instead of just happiness in the American dream is, is fantastic. Kind of going into a little bit of your story, your faith really obviously has shaped a lot of what you've done. How, how did that really, that experience going through what you went through in that valley, how did you come out the other side and try to implement your faith and everything? You've touched on a lot of the things you've already did. You had chaplains in it, but how did you go about living out your faith, giving back, but also integrating that into your work and your relationships and, and going a little bit from a cultural Christian to a, like a, a committed Christian? Yeah, I'll have to say it's still a journey. Even at age 70, it's still a journey. It's always a journey, yeah. Uh, Especially when you're uh, coming from a place of uh, drive and success and 
all those uh, being kind of your, your measure. Mm -hmm. um, but once that ran empty for me in my young 40s, and I said, okay, my driving success is going to be used for the other, in, in my case, charity, 50% of it, that got me reinvigorated <laughs> about going and so say kicking ass and take names <laughs> and, because I, you know, I, I love business. I love the game. I, um, I've, I've got some skills at it. And so, uh, but when, instead of doing it for myself and realizing that was a little bit empty, doing it for others and growing something and continuing it uh, really got me back on my game, so to speak, and, and got me reinvigorated and that can last. And so as a, uh, you know, the, as kind of a final chapter, the, the question is, you've grown this company, it's doing good for the team members, it's doing good for the customers, it's doing good for the community, um, you know, reaching 70, what's the end game? You know, I own two thirds of the company and, and, uh, and, and Dick owned a third at this point in time, or, or, or most of it, except we, we had some team members, some senior managers that we brought in that owned 18% of the company. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, most entrepreneurs say, no matter what you do, don't sell any stock. I sold stock to my CEO 30 years ago, and I've since been growing that. I've now got 40 senior managers that are individual stockholders, just like I am. And it's great to have their net worth on the line, just like mine, yeah. <laughs> going through difficult times. Um, and so um, I've been open about that for a while. And so now as I try to determine, okay, what's the end game? Do I want to go public? Well, that's a whole different deal. I don't know if I could do what I'm doing today if I went public. Probably couldn't. Uh, and do I want to go sell out? Well, everybody who I've seen sell out, their culture goes away, their company goes away, and it just gets absorbed. And I just get a big check and that's kind of, so what? Yeah. So we decided to try to continue as a private company. And so aside from the 18% that's in the, in the senior manager's hands, I started an ESOP. And so 50% of the companies in an ESOP, uh, which is tax advantage. You don't have to pay tax on that. So that's an advantage too. And any private company having patient capital is significant. Yeah. And so with the, Employee ownership of the senior managers and the and the ESOP, that's thirty percent of the company, thirty three percent that's got patient capital, and so I got a third of the company uh, in those hands. I've got a third of the company in charitable trusts, so that when I'm gone, the company will continue to give significantly, and then I've got a third of the company uh, in the founding family's hands, and so uh, Dick and I each have three kids. And we've got a group of those that are business minded and they serve on a family stewardship council. Mm -hmm. And the point being is the business is a responsibility and opportunity. It's not an entitlement. And so how do we train up on that? So they have the same heart as we do. And fortunately our kids have turned out to be great and have great values. And so that's working out very well. And so, um, I'm, I'm excited about, you know, I made this change about five years ago and I'm excited about how well it's going. And I'm now out proselytizing uh, for private businesses to stay private and think about how they can share the wealth and the wealth creation with the folks that help create it, the, the team members, you know, the, the, um, the wealth gap 
between those that work and those that own is too great. And so this is a way to even some of that out, uh, as well as getting back to our society and to, to our community. So I'd, I'd encourage other private business owners to think about that. I just I had breakfast this morning with a fellow who's got, you know, billion dollar company trying to figure out what to do. You know that giving kids too much can be detrimental. And so what do I do? And so I'm having these conversations all around the country fairly often now as a number of people who have been blessed and successful are trying to figure out what the next steps are. Yeah. And I think you just sharing all that, what you've done in your life, you've figured out the way you're intrinsically wired and God's made you and gifted and, and given you gifts and abilities and talents, but you're giving back to people in those lanes as well to be able to help them and make it win a win-win situation for their businesses and for the the company and the culture. I think what you shared right there, it creates a level of ownership within an organization, um, not just because of the financial piece, but also the care piece. And I think that when you can do that, there's a lot of good that can be done. So I think what you shared is, is fantastic. Well, and, and we each, regardless of our position, we have a kind of a stewardship of our affluence, uh, which is the money that we've been blessed to be able to, to create and make. But we've also got a stewardship of influence, people we know, places we've been, et cetera. And we don't oftentimes think about that and think about the, the reality that that our life experiences, whatever they are, even if I'm 30 or 40, gives us a certain influence. And so how do we use that in ways that can help others? Mm -hmm. And so because I was able to, to give my time, I've been using that influence for the last 30 years as well as writing checks. And I think the combination of affluence and influencer or giving funds and time, it's not just one plus one equals two, it's one plus one equals three or four. Because mm. you really know what you're giving to, you're involved, you can help them build capacity, you, you see where those dollars go. It's just, to me, it's much more fulfilling. Absolutely. And you're using your wisdom and discernment and experience to make sure that equals one plus one equals three, four, five, six, ten, hundred, you know, hundredfold. Hundred. So right. I think it, it's fantastic. Well, I wish we had more time, but I want to honor your time and get out of here. The final two questions I have for you. One is, in your opinion, what does it mean to be a good husband and father? Uh, well, I, I would say time first. Hmm. Um, uh, with my wife, we've had an awesome partnership ever since high school. And she's supportive of me and I'm supportive of her. Of her. Uh, she just, just went through a bout of cancer and, and is fortunately well uh, and cured, best we know right now. Awesome. But um, committing the time and going on each chemo and doing each one of those things. So I, I would say time is the biggest gift and is also the hardest gift uh, to give. Uh, and and I realize I should have done more earlier, but I'm trying to make up for it now. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great perspective. And that's awesome to hear. But the final question I have for you, this podcast is called Building Excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? Um, uh, I would say it has to do with uh, focusing on the other rather than yourself. I mean, I, I love the you know, kind of a Rick Warren fan. And, you know, he wrote that book, Purpose Driven Life, which is kind of the best selling book uh, after the after the Bible. And, uh, you know, the first four words in it, in this book that sold 18 million copies or whatever, are it's not about you. Mm. And those first four words are something that we as human beings 
have the hardest time realizing. And so once you do realize that and act on that, I think that all kinds of success and joy can come your way. Absolutely. That's a great way to end it. That's great advice. It's funny how sometimes, you know, we can hear this a million times, but sometimes for whatever reason, it takes a while for it to resonate. But if you can get the focus off of yourself and on others, it typically ends a lot, a lot better for, for most people. So, well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your story and also for impacting people the way you have, not just in your company, but outside your company as well. And kind of sharing the message of generosity and doing what you're doing today. If someone wanted to find out more about Weekly Homes, what's the best way about doing that? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is I'd go to our website for our foundation, okay? And that's called the Dovetail Impact Foundation. used to be called the David Weekly Family Foundation. We changed the name. Uh So you can tell I'm getting a little bit more wisdom. (laughs) Uh, It's called so dovetailimpact.org. And so that kind of tells you the story of how and where, where we give. Uh, obviously, company information. We're in 19 cities. We, we'd love to have some some of the listeners buy one of our homes. I can guarantee you we'll take great care of you. Okay. And look at davidweeklyhomes.com and you'll find us. It's yeah. hard to miss us. Absolutely. We'll put those in the show notes. And also, we'll put the link to you have a book, The Gift and the Giver. I think that we can also put in there and it's a great book to, for people to check out. There's, there's also one that I co-wrote with Peter Greer, who runs a nonprofit. Uh, called the CEO and the board, mm. which for uh, young folks that are getting on board of directors that don't really know what that means for a nonprofit, yeah. it's it's a quick hour read, a little handbook that's uh, it, it's been very useful for a lot of nonprofits. Absolutely, yeah, we'll put those links in there as well. So, David, right. thank you so much. For All right, take care. God bless. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Building Excellence Podcast. If you found value today, we would really appreciate it if you shared the show and left a rating and review. Also, be sure to follow us on all podcasts and social platforms, as well as YouTube, where you can watch full video episodes. To learn more about the podcast or any coaching or speaking, check out baileymiles.com. Thanks again, and now go work to build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy.